You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. So before we welcome Pastor Kevin to the stage, please join me in today's scripture reading from Matthew 20, 17 through 28. And if you're able, please stand. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Lindsay. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to see you all this morning. My name is Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors here. In addition to being a pastor, I'm also a husband and a dad to five kids. And one of the unexpected joys of this pandemic for me has been getting to spend a lot of extra time with my kids over the last seven months. Um, They range in age from 11 down to two. They're a ton of fun. And I feel like over this time, I've just got to know them better, Their, their strengths, their joys, their passions but also some of their quirks. Uh, Every kid has quirks. My kids are no different. Uh, One of the quirks that I'm seeing a lot these days is my kids' just amazing ability to only hear the things that they want to hear. And so we can talk to them, parents, I'm sure you felt this, but we can talk to them and say, hey, clean up your room or clean up your mess or clear your plates after dinner. And it's so amazing because they look at us and they'll, they'll make eye contact And yet it's like the words skip off their brains like a flat stone skips off a glassy lake. Like it just doesn't register. And we'll even say, hey, didn't we talk about this? I don't don't remember what you're talking about. Now, conversely, my kids love ice cream. If my wife and I were in a different room of the house, they're not even around, and we mention ice cream, it's like my kids can teleport to that room. Did you say ice cream? When are we eating ice cream? Like they, they have this amazing ability for selective hearing. And What's interesting, I actually came across an article that in 2012, researchers at the University of California, they did a a study and they actually found this to be a very real phenomenon among human beings, that 
Basically, if you think of our brains like a computer, we, we only have so much RAM, and there's only so much information that we can process at any one time. And so the way we listen, uh, our brains will kind of filter and prioritize the things that we hear. And things that we want to hear, we can be drawn into. And that's why if someone says your name, no matter what you're doing, you're going to perk up because it's interesting and appealing. But if someone says something that doesn't seem relevant interesting or appealing to you, or maybe it seems unappealing, it's really easy for us to just kind of turn the volume way down and ignore it. And teenagers, next time your parents say, it doesn't feel like you're listening to me. I just did you a huge favor because now you can tell them it's science, mom. I don't know what to tell you. What we see in this text, though, is Matthew he gives us a really a textbook example of selective hearing among Jesus' disciples. They hear what they want to hear, but they're really quick to filter out the things that they don't want to hear or the things that challenge them. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this passage, and at the end we're going to draw out some applications for us. But before we do that, I want to invite you to join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how honest it is and how it speaks to the very real condition of humanity, that it's, it's not detached from our world, our real lives, the way we are as people. So I pray this morning that as we come to your word, we wouldn't just come looking for some tips to make life a little better, but we would come knowing that your word is the word of life. Father, we need it desperately. Pray right now for our president, for the first lady. Pray for rapid healing for them, for all in government in Washington where the virus seems to be spreading rapidly. Pray for people across our country who are suffering right now because of this virus. I pray for people who are suffering. Maybe it's not physically, it's mentally, it's emotionally. Pray for the anxious, the depressed, the discouraged, the listless. And Lord, I pray as we gather this morning, as we open your word, we might be reminded of who you are, of what you're up to in this world, and what you desire of us, and really what you've planned for us. Both deep, beautiful truths and also good works that you want us to walk in. And so may your spirit stir our hearts to receive your word this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 20, we're told, and to put this in context, a little while ago, Jesus told his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. He's been saying this over and over again, so he's traveling with his disciples. But in verse 20, we're told that the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And just a quick aside, it's easy for me when I read the the gospel accounts of Jesus's life to think that when Jesus was traveling, it was him and his 12 disciples, and that was it. But what this text shows us, and other texts show us, is that, yes, he would travel with the 12, but he would oftentimes have a much larger group with him of other men and other women. And what we see is one of the women there is she was the wife of Zebedee. She was the mother of James and John, two of Jesus' disciples. And while we can't be certain of this, it's very likely that she was also... Jesus' aunt, that she was Mary's sister, and that James and John were Jesus' cousins. And so there's, you know, a very real chance of what's happening here is, you know, 
Jesus's aunt's coming to him and saying, hey, I changed your diapers when you were a baby. I've got something I want to ask you before we get to Jerusalem. And in verse 21, Jesus says to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, in Mark's account, it's just James and John who ask this question. There's no mention of their mother. What likely happened is that James and John kind of put their mom up to asking this question in that culture. There were questions that men couldn't ask or else it would be dishonorable, but they could have a woman ask on their behalf. And so it's likely that Jesus' cousins are telling their mom, hey, can you go make a request of Jesus? Can you ask that we could have the best seats in his kingdom. And if you remember in chapter 19, Jesus actually told his disciples, you all are going to sit on thrones, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. And here they're like, well, if we're all going to sit, can we like look at the seating chart and could you potentially squeeze us in here? Now, what's fascinating is the disciples are saying this to Jesus right after Jesus told them, some really hard truths. Verse 18, we're told he took the 12 disciples aside and he said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. That's the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans where he'll be mocked, flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. This isn't the first time that Jesus has foretold of his death to his disciples. He's done it three times now. And this is the third time after Jesus tells his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, I am going to suffer, and I am going to die. It's the third time that they respond by changing the subject to something more pleasant. Remember Peter back in chapter 16 said, may it never be. Like we're never going to let that happen to you. And then at the end of chapter 17, beginning of chapter 18, Jesus says it again. And the disciples say, yeah, but who's the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? In your... And then it happens here. He tells them, I'm going, I'm going to die. And they say, okay, yeah, yeah. But who gets the best seats in your kingdom? They, they didn't take it to heart. It was challenging information for them, and I have some sympathy for the disciples. I mean, at this point in the narrative, they now know Jesus is the Messiah. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, which conjures up images, imagery of victory and sovereignty and power. They're approaching the royal city of Jerusalem. They know Jesus is the king. They know he's come to establish his kingdom. And so that's, like, that's what's really loud for them. And Jesus keeps kind of whispering, yeah, but that's not all. There's going to be hardship and suffering. But they kind of just keep tuning that part out. They don't take it to heart. They don't understand how all the talk of suffering and sacrifice and struggle fits in. And so once again, it's... In, in some ways, it was challenging preparing the sermon because I feel like we've preached this a number of times, but that tells us something. That as Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, if he is getting ready to endure the cross, he has to repeat himself over and over and over again to his disciples saying, you've got to hear me. 
A life of faithfulness is not a life filled with a bunch of just glory and success and power and prestige. He's telling them a life of faithfulness is going to be a life that's filled with service, with sacrifice, and with great suffering. And they can't hear it. And so Jesus presses in. In response, he responds to his aunt's question by speaking directly to James and John. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. You want to be on my right and left when I enter my kingdom? You have no clue what you're talking about. Now, the language Matthew uses here, it's very deliberate, and it's used later in Matthew's gospel when it talks about Jesus on the cross, with one on his right and one on his left. See, the disciples thought, when you come into your kingdom, we're going to sit in these big thrones and have a big feast. And Jesus said, no, when I come into my kingdom, I'm going to be pinned to a cross. And there's going to be people on my right and my left. You guys don't know what you're asking for and making this request. And then Jesus asks them a question. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Now, Throughout the scriptures, the cup, it's a metaphor used to describe one's divinely appointed destiny. It's God's portion, his lot for you. And so sometimes the cup can refer to blessing. Psalm 23, my cup runneth over. But sometimes the cup can refer to suffering or judgment or even wrath. In this cup context, Jesus is clearly referring to the suffering he's about to endure. And he's telling James and John, you guys want the crown, but can you drink the cup? Can you endure the suffering? And they respond to him, yeah, sure, we can do that. They don't really know. I appreciate their optimism and their confidence and really their devotion. And yeah, we'll, we'll drink whatever suffering because we know that's small and we know that the kingdom's gonna be big. And Jesus responds, he said, you will drink my cup. You will endure suffering. And we know from history that they did. James was martyred. John was exiled. But Jesus goes on. He says, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And so they come and they ask, can we sit at your right and left? And he basically says, no, but you can. And you will drink a cup filled with great suffering and your faithfulness to me. Now, We read in verse 24 that when the 10 heard it, heard about this, they were indignant at the two brothers. Imagine Peter had to be pretty upset. Jesus had already told Peter, you're rocky, I'm going to build my church on you. And now it seems like James and John are pulling family connections, trying to get their way to the front of the line. They're indignant with the brothers. And so Jesus, at this point, Jesus pulls the 12 together and he's going to have a talk with them. And he said to them, we read in verse 24, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And so the conversation shifts here, not just to what's about to transpire. Jesus, he's not here just 
preparing the disciples for some suffering that's to come. He's not just telling them to gird up your loins because conflict is coming. What he is doing here is he is trying to transform how they understand reality. And I don't think that's an an overstatement. What Jesus is doing here is he is redefining what true greatness really is. He's saying, you think that real honor and greatness and prestige is found in seats of honor. And you're wrong. It's found in service. You think great honor and greatness is found through attaining and collecting and accumulating. But you're missing it. Greatness is found in pouring yourself out. And it's found in giving away. And what Jesus is teaching here, it's, it's revolutionary and it runs counter to everything we see in our world. In the world, the great and powerful, the reason we look up to them is because they have power over others and others are subservient to them. That's how the world works. That's why people want to climb the ladder. No one ever talks about wanting to climb down the ladder. It's always climb up because the higher up the ladder you get, the more power you have, likely the more money you have. And the reason we love money is because money is so close to power. And what Jesus is saying here is that's the way the world at present might work, but that is not the way things will be in the world to come. And the values of his kingdom are radically different than the values of this world at its present time. If you've ever heard the phrase, the upside down kingdom of God, that's what Jesus is speaking to right here. And he says, if you want to be great, you have to deprogram your mind and reprogram it. Greatness is found in service. Whoever would be great among you, he says, must be your servant. The word servant there is a word used to describe back in that day, table waiters, people who would prepare food and then serve food to others. It was not a popular word. It wasn't even like a, you know, a compliment. It couldn't be used, oh, you're such a servant. No, it was a derogatory term. It was a demeaning term. They're the servant. They exist to serve me. And Jesus says, you want to be great? You take that posture. And then he takes it even further. And he says, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. A slave is someone who is not free to do as they wish. But they're bound to another. Their life is not their own. Now, as Pastor Jonathan mentioned a few weeks ago when we started uh, chapter 18, 19, 20, as we've gotten in here, Jesus, in these passages, he's talking about human relationships. And so he first, Jesus begins by saying, listen, you need to live lives marked by forgiveness and grace to one another. You need to extend forgiveness, 70 times seven. And then he talks about marriage and he says, you need to remain faithful to your spouse, even if they turn out to be different than you thought. You need to stick it out remain faithful. And then he talks about money. He says, you can't be ruled by money. And then he talks about envy. And he says, don't spend your life wanting what other people have. Rejoice in what you have and rejoice in what others can have as well. All of these things are being summed up here. Where Jesus, he's talking about our hearts. And instead of having hearts where, hearts that are marked by this desire to accumulate, to triumph, to be on top. He's calling us to have hearts that are marked by service and sacrifice and love. 
And all the things Jesus teaches here, these are all basic Christianity things. It's not something that, you know, it takes 20 years for you to learn. Oh, that's part of Christianity is I need to forgive people. That's part of, I need to remain faithful to my spouse. I mean, this is basic stuff. And yet it proves to be really, really hard among God's people. It's really challenging. And not just those particular behaviors, but the bigger one of having a heart. It's marked by service and sacrifice that's willing to take the low road. I just wonder, why is that? Why is service so hard? Why is taking this posture so challenging? Think about it. You could say pride, yeah. Pride's part of it for sure, sometimes. Not for everyone. Why is it so hard? Let me ask you another question. Why were the other disciples mad when James and John asked to sit at Jesus' right and left hands? Why were they upset? Uh, Because they cut in line, sure. But like, go deeper. Why were they upset? Is it not because they wanted to sit at Jesus' right and left hand? Is it not because they wanted to be on the inside? You see, in our world, according to our world's economy, those who are on top, those are the ones who are power and great and people want to flock to, and those who are lowly and who serve and who are humble, they never make the list of 100 greatest Americans, or the 100 most influential Americans. The mom who raises her kids faithfully and makes peanut butter and jelly after peanut butter, that never gets on the list. It's accumulating. Why? Why? Because... We have been programmed to think that the more you have, the closer you are to getting in. And we all have this deep longing to be in. That's why you, James and John, can we sit? I mean, we're all in the circle. We're all at the table. But can we be in the inner circle, Jesus? And this relentless longing that we have, this desire we have to constantly be on the inside, to never feel like we're on the outside, I think that's what prevents us from living lives marked by radical sacrifice and service. And I think we can trace that, that relentless longing back to Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, remember what God did? Remember the punishment? He banished them from the garden. And he put an angel with a flaming sword to guard the way back in. From that time until now, humanity's all lived east of Eden. And I think every human being at some level or another, you get down deep enough, there is this sphere of being on the outside, on the outside with God, and it transform, or it transfers to our relationships with one another. We're constantly worried about being on the outside with others. I mean, think about a middle school lunchroom and how terrifying the first day of school was for many of us as you got your tray in hand. Am I going to be in or am I going to be out? How close to in can I get? And it never stops. It's not like you get to high school and that goes away or college or your first job or your second job or the neighborhood that you live in or the car that you drive. It's a relentless pursuit to try to get a little bit further in. And I think the reason we have that desire is because we all at some level know that we are outsiders. And this, this fear of being outsiders, this longing to be in, it doesn't just damage our own souls, it damages our relationships with one another. 
Because what it does is it turns all other people into rivals or competitors. There's only a few slots I want in. And for me to get in, you can't be in. Because there's only two seats next to Jesus. Love you, the other ten. Peter, you're great, but I want in. And for me to get in, you've got to be out. According to this world, the way you find greatness is you fight to get in and you push others out. You lord it over them as Jesus is. And this is why the whole idea of being servant-hearted people, like Jesus desires for us to be, it just, it's, it's hard for us to really fathom or wrap our minds around. I mean, we might serve every once in a while. We might do a good deed. We like the photo ops. We like, you do get some kind of a rush when you do a good deed and you see the instant like reward for your actions. And I don't want to diminish that at all. I'll take anything. But I do want to say what Jesus is calling us to here, it's more than just a good deed. I mean, he's talking about our hearts and our posture. He wants us to be people who instinctively carry burdens and wash feet. That's very hard for us. Jesus, he does something surprising and it's unprecedented. It's a word we use a lot right now, but it's unprecedented in Matthew's gospel. I want to read verses 26 to 28 again. He says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, that's how Jesus liked to refer to himself, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here, for the first time, In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples why he's going to the cross. He's told them that he's going to the cross multiple times. And they don't really get it. They don't understand. I mean, they're they're thinking Jesus is still coming and he's going to bring this, you know, shock and awe kind of victory. They understand he's going to suffer. They can't piece it all together. Well, here's the first time that Jesus says, I'm going and I'm going to die. And you know why I'm going to die? It's because I'm going to give my life as a ransom for you. And the word ransom here was a word that would be used to describe the price someone would pay to free a slave. When it's used in reference to God, it's used to describe being delivered from slavery. And Jesus here, he declares that the reason he's come, the reason he has served, and the reason he is going to the cross and giving up his life is to serve us, to set us free from our slavery to sin. See, when Jesus calls us to serve, he's not saying be good people. That's sometimes what we hear. Be good people and do good deeds. He's saying you get down to the very fabric of how God created the universe and right at the very core of it all is service and sacrifice. The passage Jesus alludes to here, it's the suffering servant passage found in Isaiah 53. It's a very famous passage back then. It's famous now. It was about this mysterious figure who was going to come and suffer in obedience to God. And what Jesus does here is he says, that text, that's about me. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's to crush Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see offspring. 
He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their inequities. Jesus is saying, the reason I've come, the reason I'm calling you to serve, the reason I'm going to serve is because I am going to give my life. I'm going to bear your iniquities and your sins so that you might be accounted righteous. I'm going to lay down my life to redeem yours. I'm giving everything for you. And I love in that passage where it talks about out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He'll see his offspring. He'll see the fruit of his suffering, which is the redemption of his people. And he won't just say, great, I'm glad it worked. He will be satisfied. He will be delighted. He will be at peace. Now, the disciples, they're still wrapping their minds around this. But, but what Jesus is saying here, the reason I'm calling you, is because it's to be people of service and love and sacrifice. It's because that's who I am and that's who I've come to make you to be. I've come to form you in my image. And the way we actually grow is people who don't just serve every once in a while. or The way we grow into being these kinds of people, it's not through lectures. It's not through just convicting sermons. I wish it was sometimes. It's through being people who've come to grips with the love of God. When you know that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. When you know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to redeem us from our sin, to be our ransom, that kind of love transforms you. Because that kind of love, what it means is with the Lord of the universe, the king over all, he has given everything. He gave his son to bring us in. So now, no longer are we just servants or subjects. Now we are sons and daughters. And even when we sin, even when we fail, even when we mess up, it doesn't change that standing. We are in. And I love my kids so much, but I'm a sinful father. How much more does our Heavenly Father love us? And when you know that love, it frees you up from having to play this game of trying to find love and significance and greatness from other things in this world. It frees you up to obey and to serve him because you know that his love is what transforms us and because you're in. You're in. And what was lost, the Garden of Eden, was restored to us through the Garden of Gethsemane. Instead of being banished, we've been invited back in. So I have three thoughts I want to put before you as we consider this call to become people marked by service and love and humility. Number one, Jesus is not calling us just to specific actions here. He's calling us to a posture of heart. It's about a posture of heart. And what I mean is Jesus is not saying you need to to serve a few extra hours a week at church or in your community. He's not talking about time management. He's talking about our heart's posture, our, our way of thinking and being and understanding and relating to one another. 
saying that comes. I want you to think of yourself. You're here to serve. You're here to care. You're here to carry burdens. An old mystic, Catholic mystic, Teresa of uh, Avila, I love this quote. She says that when one reaches the highest degree of human maturity, one has only one question left. How can I be helpful? That's the kind of people Jesus wants us to become. Wherever we are, whatever situation we find ourselves in, how can I be helpful? Now, that's not the posture of this world, and that's not going to be encouraged in this world, but Jesus is saying that is the culture of his kingdom. People who show up and say, how can I help? Number one, it's a posture. Number two, say it takes practice. And what I mean by this is we don't just drift into becoming these kinds of people. And while I believe the heart, the motivation, where the the real fuel comes to become these people is the cross. I also know that there are many here who you've known about God's love, you've experienced his love, but you still struggle. And I would say, yes, that's the foundation, but it also takes practice. You have to practice your way into becoming the kind of people that Christ wants us to become. Dallas Willard, I love Dallas Willard. He talks about serving as a discipline, a practice that's part of our lives. And he says, I serve another to train myself away from arrogance, possessiveness, envy, resentment, covetousness. I love that. So often when we think of service, wherever it is, we think, I'm going to go and do a good deed. Dallas Willard thought, when I serve, I'm training myself. I'm reminding myself that I'm not the center of the universe reminding myself that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And I'm training myself in righteousness. And the last thing I would say about this, this posture of heart that takes practice, I would say this, this is the way to healing the divisions in the church and in the world. Might be counterintuitive, but it's the way relationships are healed. Marriages are healed. Friendships are healed. You know, our world's approach to honor, to greatness, it's inherently divisive because you can't be on top unless someone else is on the bottom. James and John can't sit at Jesus' right or left hand without pushing others to the end of the table. It's so baked into how we think and how we operate. It makes everything a zero-sum game. I can't win without you losing. And that, to an extent, that, that's the way of our world, but that's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is, you know, Jesus says to all who would come. It's not like there's just a few. He died for a few people. He died for the whole world, to save the whole world, to bring all who would come in. There's not a limited supply of his grace or his love. We have limitations. He does not. And when we fall into this thinking that God is limited, that there's a scarcity of resources that he has to distribute, instead of remembering he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, when we think there's only so much and we have to fight for it, that's when we start to divide. We start stomping on each other to climb to the top because there's only so much to go around. What the gospel invites us into is a new way of thinking and seeing the world, not as a place where resources are scarce, but a place that is 
filled with an abundance of God's grace, mercy, and love. When we know the abundance of his grace, his riches, it makes us people marked by grace. Here's how one author put it. He said, God is prodigal, abundant, generous, and even wasteful beyond our small fears and imaginations. And that invites us to be generous. When we have a sense of God's abundance, we can risk having a bigger heart and a generosity beyond the instinctual fear that has us believe that because things seem scarce, we need to be more calculating. Jesus assures us that the measure we measure out is the measure that we ourselves will receive in return. In essence, that says that the air we breathe out will be the air we will re-inhale. If we breathe out pettiness, we will breathe in pettiness. If we breathe out bitterness, then bitterness will be the air that surrounds us. If we breathe out a sense of scarcity that makes us calculating and be fearful, then calculation and fearfulness will be the air that we re-inhale. And I want to pause there for a second as we think about the temperature of our world, of our society right now. Is this not it? People breathing in and breathing out bitterness, pettiness, sense of scarcity, fearfulness. Rollheiser goes on, he says, but if aware of God's abundance, we breathe out generosity and forgiveness. We will breathe in the air of generosity and forgiveness. Jesus doesn't tell just James and John, you want to be great, you have to be. He pulls them all in. Because this doesn't work if only one. I mean, it will to an extent, but he's saying, this isn't just for some of you. This is all of my disciples. You want to be great? Go low. You want to be great? Serve. And watch what kind of community that will form. This text, what really struck me, I think it's teaching us that our willingness to serve and really take a posture of heart of a servant It's a really good barometer that reveals how we think about God and even more how we think God thinks about us. Do we think God's generous? Is he stingy? Well, this passage, it points to God's great generosity. Matthew 26, just shortly after all of this has taken place, Matthew tells us that as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup, divinely appointed destiny. Remember that? The Lord's portion. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it. Drink of my cup, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. A life of faithfulness, yes, it's, it's marked by sharing in the sufferings of Christ and drinking the cup of suffering. But really the cup that we get to drink more than any is the cup of his suffering and the cup of our healing. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I hope you grabbed a communion packet on your way in. If you didn't, they're right outside this door. But I encourage you, as you take part in this, to be reminded not just of what the calling is on our life, but even more important, what Christ has done and what he has given for us, his body broken, his blood shed. Let me pray. 
I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.